With ransomware from Russia threatening U.S. critical infrastructure, the question heard more and more is, should the U.S. Cyber Command shoot back? My next guest says yes, but only under certain carefully defined conditions. He's senior research scholar at Columbia University's School for International and Public Affairs, Jason Healy. Mr. Healy, good to have you on. Hey, thanks, Tom. Now, you have written, first of all, uh, your article in Lawfare, which uh, is how we found you on this topic, mentions that TrickBot is back and that what happened last fall involved both Cyber Command and the commercial sector responding to the same thing. Review for us what happened and why that's kind of the dilemma the country faces. Right. So TrickBot was a reasonably prevalent bit of software. And what Cyber Command said was, hey, we're coming up on the U.S. elections and the TrickBot operators are associated with Russia. And we don't want anything happening over the 2020 elections. So in October, uh, September, October, they said, we'll do a disruption. We'll use our military cyber power for the federal listeners to your show, right? Using Title 10 military authorities to go out and disrupt what's basically a purely criminal operation. And they were doing that at the same time, actually just a little bit after Microsoft was themselves going after TrickBot. And so what I was trying to do in the piece was setting up, all right, seems like it's a good idea. I think we can get behind that. But do we really need the military using military power to go after the same targets that are already being taken down by others? And what is the methodology that Microsoft uses? Because they do this regularly and they have a program of taking down some of these botnets, but they they don't. Well, what do they do? (laughs) Right. They use the courts. To a substantial degree. I mean, at the end, it's technology, right? I mean, they're going in and they're taking over domains and things like that, but they do it through the courts and going in and saying, hey, these operators are misusing Microsoft brands and technologies, and they get the courts to nod to that. And often, if not usually with the Department of Justice involved, and they've been at this for a decade So this is the main way that you see these botnet takedowns, not always with Microsoft, but in this way with the private sector in the lead and going through the courts. That's obviously very different from Cyber Command, which is going in and using technical tools and not using the courts at all. So Microsoft then doesn't zap them with a counterattack and actually do cyber damage as the Cyber Command is capable of doing. Absolutely not. It's not hack back, right, in the way that we might think about. It's active defense. It's persistent engagement, to use the military term. It's just going about it in a different way. And so if you look at some of the more recent attacks, and we'll use the famous case of the pipeline, which the pipeline wasn't bombed, but the cyber system of the operator was bombed, which scared them into thinking that they could take down the pipeline, and therefore they shut down the pipeline before that could happen, paid the ransomware. The result was some short-lived but pretty tough economic dislocation for parts of the country. Does that elevate to something that would require a military response, do you think? I guess I could make the imperfect analogy. Suppose a nation cut the pipeline, you know, and did some kind of physical harm in that manner. Yeah, it's a great example because it started as a purely criminal enterprise, but it had clear national security implications. And we can't always know beforehand which ransomware attacks are going to lead to those high-end national security implications where you now say, all right, maybe we would need the military to do so. Now, that's not our fault, right? That's on behalf of the adversaries. 
So the issue comes down to is, okay, we can't have the military, or we don't think, especially in a democracy like ours, that we want the military to be getting involved in everything, especially criminal things that are homeland security, right? If we're always turning to the military, they're never going to be resourced for it. And we have these constitutional issues about it, right? I mean, we're about a year from when we had the 82nd Airborne almost on the streets of Washington, D.C., right? We as Americans say, no, the military should only be reserved for some things. So our issue is, okay, well, then under what circumstances? What are the criteria that it is smartest for us to reserve the military for those situations? We're speaking with Jason Healy, senior research scholar at Columbia University's School for International and Public Affairs. And if you were to shoot back in the case of the pipeline, you would still have the issue, yes, this could be a critical danger to society, but you're shooting in a cyber sense, not at another military but at some group that's operating out of a country, which we can't really attribute to the Russian government. So I imagine that's another kind of offset issue to deal with. Absolutely. It bothers me a little bit less because I don't care as much about attribution, which implies who are the people involved, uh, what's the group involved, versus national responsibility. There's no doubt that Putin is responsible for this, right? It might not be people that are getting a Russian government paycheck or have a Russian government ID that are doing this. But we have no doubt that they've had sanctuary and the ability to do this. So I've got no problem in saying we're going to hold the Russian government and Vladimir Putin responsible for this and just proceed from that point. All right. So you have laid out a set of criteria under which Cyber Command should counter hack. And uh, tell us what those are. Yeah. So I said, boy, it, it needs to be imminent, right? Something important has to be coming up. In the case of TrickBot, that was the U.S. elections where they said, aha, boy, we need to act quickly to make sure. It could also be, for example, we have intelligence that the malicious software as a group is about to shift into doing something more dangerous. Severity. Right? We shouldn't be doing this for something minor. We should only be doing it for something major. TrickBot was relatively large in this. Obviously, it should have an overseas focus, right? If it's in the United States, then that's not something that we should really be thinking about the United States adversary. I said, look, for the military to be getting involved, it should be a criminal group or malware that's tied to China, Russia, North Korea, or Iran, right? Using the military for a criminal group or malware that's from Brazil strikes me as a mismatch of what we're trying to get done here. And last, the military as a last-ish resort, right? We shouldn't leave it for the last resort because by then it might be too late. We don't want to game this too much. But if someone's already doing it in the case of Microsoft, then maybe we don't need the military to be getting involved against a criminal group. Now, and I'll just say there's a strong and a weak version of this. The strong is these are all legal tests and you need all of them. The weak is, well, these are the kinds of things that it should be involved with. And as long as it's along these lines, that's probably okay. And who would make the decision here? Because you've got a chain of command. And, you know, when there was the taking out of bin Laden, you know, that went all the way to the Oval Office, that decision. In this case, these are words that make sense for criteria. But the devil is in the details. Imminent five minutes from now, an hour from now, severity, a million people affected, and so on. You get my point. Yeah, absolutely. Ideally, this would be the NSC 
through a modification of the documents which say how we're going to do these. Under Obama, it had been PPD-20. Under Trump, it had been a document called NSPM-13. I don't know if the Biden White House is updating that document with new guidance, but these kind of things could be built in there. Also, it could just be used locally within U.S. Cyber Command and their interagency discussions with Justice and DHS on who's going to do what. All right. So to summarize, this should be something that is embodied in a policy so that it would seem incumbent upon the Biden White House at this point, if they agree, is to have a PPD-20 or an NSPM-13. My hunch is they'll resurrect PPD-20, if fastest <laughs> yeah, prologue yeah. from the Obama administration, but there needs to be some document that controls all of this. Right. And we might dance around this. It strikes me like the drug war, right, where we decided that in the 80s, where the military was going to get involved because there was this clear and present danger. And we might say, all right, we'll have a joint FBI-U.S. Cyber Command unit that's going to bring the authorities and the capabilities of both. You might even add private sector, right? Maybe even Microsoft and others that have been involved in these takedowns have a seat at that table. And all three of them say, what are we going to do about this? And who's got the best capabilities and authorities? That kind of thing seems like a better way of doing this than Cyber Command off on its own. Jason Healy, a senior research scholar at Columbia University's School for International and Public Affairs and also past president of the Cyber Conflict Studies Association. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Tom. We'll post this interview plus a link to his Lawfare article at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual, uh, afloat commands. Uh, The first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, And then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it 
so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I, we'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it. Um, From Sea to the C-Suite, fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but... Uh, the quality that that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, And I I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you use to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention and it was, It was, you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, Absolutely. Um, What I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions. Uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I, I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy, and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy, and um his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes, when I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories uh, as parables to get my point across. 
And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment. And it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing, if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is, is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler, and to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast. We'll see you next time. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.